Customers want fast and frictionless digital experiences, yet also expect protection against breaches, privacy violations, and fraud. Drive engagement by optimizing security and convenience to attract and retain customers. Use the Ping One cloud platform to build, test, and optimize digital experiences. The no-code orchestration engine weaves together authentication, user management, and MFA, all of which can enhance security, drive engagement, and boost revenues. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash ping identity to learn more. Attacks can't be prevented, but they can be stopped. Modern cyber attackers have already made it inside your network, but you have the upper hand. Find and eradicate threats with ExtraHop network detection and response and shut them out before real damage is done. Learn the advanced techniques attackers are using and how ExtraHop stops them with a live attack simulation. Register at securityweekly.com forward slash ExtraHop. That's Extra H-O-P. Welcome back to Enterprise Security Weekly. Don't miss any of your favorite Security Weekly content. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe to subscribe to any of our podcast feeds and have all new episodes downloaded right to your phone. You can also join our mailing list, Discord server, and follow us on social media and our streaming platforms, which include Twitch and YouTube. Don't forget to check out our library of on-demand webcasts and technical trainings as well at securityweekly.com forward slash on-demand. Uh, some really fun ones uh, from earlier this year there. Uh, well worth checking out. Now for the Enterprise Security Weekly news, you can look at securityweekly.com forward slash ESW286. Is that correct? Yeah, ESW286 is where the notes are. And there are a lot of notes and a lot of stories for today because we skipped uh, news last week. So uh, let's go ahead and get into it. All right, should we start with the first one here? Uh, Katie, Tyler, what do you think about uh, cloud security startup hitting 100 million ARR in 18 months? This is Wiz for context, by the way. Yeah, I mean, good for them. That's quite a, quite a uh, astronomical explosive growth to go from, I mean, it's, it, does the article say they went from zero to 118 months, or were they at some other number before? Well, they they say they, I, I think the 18 months is measured from general availability. So that's not the beginning of the company. That's from when they started selling the product. Got it. Got it. Okay. So it says they've, in, they've existed for 32 months. Um, so there's probably an 18 month or whatever that is. I didn't do the math figure before that. Um, yeah. But I mean, still, that's phenomenal growth. Good for them. They 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 found a market that was untapped, that was massive, that needed help, and they got the product out at the right time with the right people, and took this thing off. So yeah, good for them. It's fantastic growth. I applaud them. You know, assuming assuming that ARR is real, I applaud them. Um, the flip side of that question is how much money have they taken in, and how much have they burned to get to a hundred million? I don't yeah. know those those numbers off the top of my head either, but no, they're there in the notes. Oh, I see it now. They They raised 622 months. Yeah. So 600 million in 22 months. And the question is how much do they have left? Always, always the question, right? I mean, they they blitzed the market. Um, It it will be determined whether it's a win or not when they exit. You can't ever determine whether something's a win until the game is over. Um, because you could you could blitz zero to a hundred million and spend a billion dollars to do it and never recoup the money you had to spend to get there. So, um, yes. And when you look at the raw growth rates, it's it's a absolutely phenomenal speed to a hundred. Um, the question is how healthy is the business around it, and if it's a healthy business, yeah. God bless me, good luck. So yeah, and, and that's a big question that like further on in my notes. I know I have a lot of notes here, but. Um, yeah, we, we we don't know the net new revenue. We we don't have the um, the details we we need to see. You know if there's if there's churn. You know like like uh, to to really uh, figure out the number here. We we don't know how how hard they're burning that cash. Um, we we do know that they went from like 280 employees to 506 months in the past six months. Like I I don't even know how you hire that many people that quick like that's insane. well the, the real question of that is how do you hire that many people that fast 
and keep the quality to, to work? a point where you're not putting out pure garbage. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that would be I, one of my big questions because it's one thing to get, you know, a couple couple million dollars to hire folks and another thing to actually onboard them properly and make sure everybody's marching in the same direction in terms of product expectations, customer outreach. So, you know, like Tyler said, you know, kudos to them if, if this is true, but it seems like there's almost a race to be the first um, versus the goal to be the best necessarily. Um, not necessarily with wins. I think there's, you know, certain segments of the market that are that are trying to say, hey, we're the first to do this, we're the first to do that. And, you know, former analysts speak is you never say you're first, best, only, or unique. Um, so <laughs> those are like anyway. the death words here. No, I, honestly, yeah. I think at the end of the day, I, I would not be surprised if their revenue is where they said it is. I don't think they would just go out on a limb and lie about that. But the no, bigger question I think that's that's way too risky for them right. or anybody because then they and, they risk losing customer trust and market right. trust and certainly investor, and investor trust. trust. Yeah. Yeah. But the 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 real I think question here is the health of the company around it. And I'm not positing that the health of Wiz is poor. I'm just saying we don't know because it takes the health of a company is more than just its revenue rate, right? Because if you have a hundred million rev rate and a 500 million a year burn rate, you're in, you're dead. You're never going to make it, right? So it's all about a balance and a healthiness of the company itself. And I would love to see additional metrics around the business state of the business across the board before I declared this a massive win. But from a PR side of the house, 100%, if, if I was in a company that did zero to 118 months, you bet I would be touting it as the, a massive achievement because it is and good for them for getting there. Yeah, and it's uh, and and there are certainly um, you know some measurements out there. There's some some interesting ones like Bessemer's efficiency score and David Sachs uh, burn multiple, um, but we we don't have the numbers to calculate that. The only That's one right. I found that we can calculate with the numbers we have is Dave Kellogg's hype factor, which divides the capital raised six hundred million by the ARR hundred million, and that gives you a, a hype factor of six, which is off his scale. <laughs> yeah. like, like hype factor of five plus suggests there's very little there at all, but I, I'm not sure how well that applies to the security market. Like, like, like this could be a very unique case where, like you said, Tyler, you know, they, they, they caught the tail of the dragon here. You know, they're one of the first in the CSPM market, uh, which is huge now. And, and they, they picked the right, right thing at the right time, um, you know, and caught that money as well. And, uh, yeah, so, so I, I don't know how much you can go off of that. You know, m most of these are, uh, you know, are applied to SaaS companies in general, not, not security companies. Yeah. When we're talking about Dave Kellogg's hype factor, the, when the question is, when was that, that metric, when did that metric become a metric? 2015. So 2015, that's the question, right? Look at the, look at the investment to return or the investment to ARR numbers in 2015 and compare it to 2021 yeah. when, when Wiz took in the bulk of their capital, right? Um, I would argue that six is probably not that nutty for a 2021 investment. Um, yeah. But, you know, again, I don't think this is a great way of measuring it because invested capital changes with the, with the, strengths of the comps in the public market. And so literally a year ago, the hype factor would be a very different result compared to in today's market. So um, it's just a hard thing to understand. Well, you know, one thing I noticed when people were kind of debating, like, is this a real number or not? Um, in some private conversations, I saw people just coming out of the woodwork saying, well, we use them and, you know, we pay them a lot of money for, for what they do. And we use them and we pay them like, like enough people came out of the woodwork and said, you know, yeah, we're a Wiz customer that this totally seems like a, a real number. Oh, I'm willing to bet the hundred million is absolutely a real number. I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised at that at all. Um, you know, but the, like not, not, not half bookings in other words, like, like, 
actual. No, and and you know they were the talk of the town at Black Hat a couple weeks ago at the Black Hat conference. Man, everybody oh, was talking about this because they dropped it. I think on the first day of the conference, the morning of the first day of the events, and everybody was talking. About, oh, have you seen Wiz's numbers, their growth, et cetera? And it's like, wow, okay, great. You're a privately held company. You don't need auditable metrics. You don't need anything beyond what you want to release to the public, so you can paint yeah. any story you want. It's it's a PR stunt, you know. Even if the numbers are real, it's still. Yeah, and that's one of the things about Dave Kellogg's uh, um, hype uh, metric here is he talks about, you know, simply releasing um, strategic numbers uh, alone can increase the hype, which can actually inc- increase your customers, you know, the confidence in using the product and stuff like that. So, like, hype can beget actual growth. Yeah, I always say, you know, when you're doing well as a business, it's okay to tell the world your numbers. When you're not doing well as a business, you 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 talk in vagaries, right? You talk in ballparks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, yeah. Good, good uh, point of reference there. Good rule of thumb. All right, uh, where do we go from there? It's all downhill. It's all uh... <laughs> literally. How do you, I mean? How do any of these uh, these funding rounds from Number two through number eleven here even remotely matter to the news that was that well I guess the seventy million raised for um, TX one networks ICS now that's surprising to me an ICS vendor raising seventy million in a Series B I didn't know that ICS had gotten that big yeah we actually saw was it Dragos had a huge funding a while back it was like a hundred million wasn't it yeah how long how say- long has TX one been around. I don't know, but this is a B, so um, and they're probably not growing as fast as as Wiz. So I would say at least four years, maybe. But Let's I see. don't know. This is this is the first I hear of this company. Funny enough, founded in twenty nineteen. Again, according to Crunchbase, founded in twenty nine. Founded in twenty nineteen. Uh, founders Ava Chen, Terrence Liu, Ava Chen. I wonder if that's the same Ava Chen from Trend Micro. Um, ninety-three point nine million in funding since twenty nineteen. See, and Chinese Taipei, Taiwan. Gotcha. And yes, I don't know it's, if the I same, it's the same Ava Ava Chen from uh, Trend Micro, the uh, original co-founder and CEO of Trend Micro. Oh, interesting. Yep. Very interesting. Yeah, that, that Trend Micro is an interesting uh, startup story in itself, that story a lot of people don't know. Okay. But yeah, it's, um, yeah, we're, we're starting to see more and more uh, ICS, and uh, yeah, I, I don't know which term we're using here, industrial internet of things. I guess ICS... Uh, suggest slightly different things than industrial internet of things. But um, yeah, either way, I'm surprised that the TAM is as big as it is. Um, but again, that I hundred percent could just be me, dis- me being disconnected from re- the reality of what has grown into a potentially major market, especially in China where I have no visibility whatsoever. Right. Yeah. Same. Yeah. And it's, um, yeah, I, I think it's become clear that, you know, ICS is a legit target that a lot of uh, state-sponsored uh, adversaries are, are looking at. And we've got another story here. It basically says insurance is not going to cover you <laughs> in those situations. Uh, I think that that goes all the way down to story number 32, where, uh, and basically what, what Lloyd's is saying, you know, I'm not an expert on cyber insurance, but it seems likely to filter down to uh, to other uh, insurer groups, but yeah, basically they're saying, and, and it's vague enough to where, you know, my first question was, what about collateral damage? Like not Petya, like if I, you know, Merck wasn't targeted by not Petya. Um, and they, they had that whole, uh, legal battle over their insurance covering them because they got hit by it. You know, clearly it was an attack that was, uh, targeting, uh, Ukrainian software um, but uh, a lot of people outside Ukraine were, were using that software and got hit by it and, and got yeah. impacted. 
problems. Yeah, you know, this this whole thing about excluding catastrophic nation-based cyber attacks from insurance coverage seems very difficult to figure out uh, if you really think about it. Because if you think about the attacks we've seen, even over the last 10 years, you know, it takes forever to get attribution, if you can even get to attribution at all for many of these attacks, right? And so if you can't get to the point where you know who did it, how do you know whether you can even cover it? So it seems like such a such a vague gray area that I would be loath to say that you wouldn't cover it based on the fact that it's a nation state attacker. Well, are they potentially counting on the fact that a lot of, uh, not a lot of, uh, certain types of attacks are meant to be a statement and and a, a group might claim responsibility for it? Is that what they're banking on here? You know, because there are certain attacks that we know where where nation states have come out and said, yep, that was us. Um, That's that's not common necessarily, but, you know, could that possibly be a factor? But also isn't cyber insurance in general meant to cover catastrophic attacks? I mean, I, I thought that's what insurance was there for in general, not just in cybersecurity, but... So, so traditionally, uh, acts of war have been excluded in, in the insurance world, from what I've read. Um, but I mean, you, you know, the, a lot of the stuff happening with nation states and cyber and stuff like that, you know, it's not the same as as kinetic attacks. You know, it's not the same as cities right. getting shelled. You know, so I, I'm not sure it should be held to the same standard. Right. Yeah, I mean, it, it's one thing if if maybe this has the potential for physical damage, too, which certainly, you know, certain types of attacks could. But if you're talking about a massive data breach, it, it, that's what cyber, I thought, that's what cyber insurance was for. Or, or even system disruption that stops yeah. a company from being able to function for days, weeks, months at a time. I, you know, to me, that's yeah, sort of the the definition of insurance. I know, you know, from the insurance company's point of view, there are hoops that companies have to go through. They have to demonstrate that they've yeah. taken reasonable measures. They have to make sure they're up to date. Uh, they have to get the audits, all, all of that stuff. But if you're taking away a big potential chunk of what insurance is supposed to cover, you know, what's the point of paying all of this insurance money? Well, that and there's a couple of interesting points in here, right? So one quote in the article says, for most market participants, it's not so much about nation state activity as it is about when the level of activity rises to a degree of catastrophe in financial terms. That's something that we're all wrestling with. The we in that uh, comment are uh, the insurance groups themselves. The other thing that caught my eye is, where did it go? The U.S. government has formally attributed not petty to Russia and want to cry to North Korea, but both nations deny involvement. So at what point does it become an official nation state attack? And what happens if it takes two years for them to actually do an attribution with any actual detail and you've already paid out as a cyber insurer? I don't I don't understand how this even can be enforceable. Or or are they not gonna pay out? until like like are they going to hold off on on paying out you know because well that would be proving a negative right like look at look at the case of not petya u.s government formally attributed it to russia and want to cry to north korea but in what time frame and so what are you saying we're just not going to pay out because we think this one's huge and we're going to wait x number of months years decades for attribution (laughs) yeah and and are they banking on the fact that okay maybe um quote, catastrophic attack will wipe out a business enough that the money that they would have to pay is less because the stock price would go down or the company would have to downsize or, you know, or whatever the implications would be if it's, quote, catastrophic enough. Yeah, war exclusions in particular have been a topic of fierce debate within the cyber insurance industry for many years. Um, the relative youth of the cyber insurance market means that there's a lack of standardization around terms and exclusion clauses. Ratings from Moody's, a unit of Moody's Corp said in a June note. In other words, they don't even know themselves how to yeah. really determine efficacy of some of these exclusions or inclusions. Yeah, even calling it war exclusions, like, like 
you, you know, I, I, I don't think the, the comparison goes very far, you know, but between, uh, you know, historical war exclusions and insurance and cyber stuff. Well, and add to the, add to that, the fact that if I remember correctly, the bulk of these were not necessarily, especially at the time that they were detected, were not necessarily attributable at all to a nation state. They could have been an individual actor within the nation or group of actors within the nation that the nation knew about and just chose to ignore. Is that considered a nation state attack because we turned a blind eye to, you know, Korean individuals attacking United States ICS systems? Well, that's also, that's a really good point because, you know, everybody's definition of nation state actor might be different. If you're going to go to other countries, I mean, I'm sure this happens in the U.S. too, but if, if somebody is caught or a group, a small group of people, large group of people, whatever it is, caught and and is... It, if somehow attribution is possible and they find a person or group of people who are in a nation, is the nation state going to deny their involvement? I I mean, if you're the kind of organization that's going to be specifically trying to go out and harm other nations, you might not care about that. You might just specifically say, all right, we're throwing these people under the bus. This is the risk they take. We're paying them to do what they do. And, you know, that might be part of their employment agreement. Yeah. And and according to according to um, U.S. In, in the United States litigation, insurance insurers have the burden of proof um, on the ca- in, in particular in the case of war exclusion, uh, according to Moody's. So that makes it even more difficult for an insurer because now they have to prove that it's a nation state if they don't want to pay out. Right. And, and in some cases, these, these nation states who are employing individuals are going to cover their tracks pretty darn well so that they can say, you know, there's no evidence that this person ever existed in our system. And another quote from it here, part of the reason why insurers are increasingly leery of covering state-based cyber attacks is the vast economic damage they can cause, which, you know, begs the question, okay, if insurance isn't going to cover it and, and it's going to cause vast economic damage, you know, now now we're into the the subject of, of bailouts and, and whether or not governments should be actively protecting private business, which is something that the, the UK has been kind of playing around with and considering and you know there's been some discussions here in the u.s of, of that as well of the federal government taking a more active uh role in defending uh private companies or pri- uh, public and private not you know government institutions in other yeah. words <clears throat> that's been a, a point of contention for decades yeah i think it'll take a big event where you know, the insurance business in mass is like, yeah, we're, we're <laughs> that worm that wrecked like half the world. We're not covering that. You know, it, it'll take an event for that, for, for this to really get resolved, I think. Or lit on fire. <laughs> I don't know if that would resolve <laughs> it either, but you know, at least it would drive the conversation. Right. Absolutely. All right. Uh, speaking of things that are on fire. Um, let's cover Twitter apocalypse uh, next here. That's, <laughs> it's one that that we cannot miss today. Um, the debates are uh, very divisive that that I've seen. I, I don't know. I, I'm curious, based on what you both have seen, how you think it's playing out. But from the conversations I've seen, it's almost fifty fifty, where folks are are like, you know, Mudge is a jerk for doing this. And Mudge did the right thing. He's he's a hero, and like very little in between. <laughs> like very very divisive uh, uh, situation here. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and defer to Katie and let her take the first crack at it. <gasps> I was going to do the same thing. Damn it. <laughs> um, I, I can I continue talking it's if, a if case you need me to buy you a minute. Mudge is a jerk, or Mudge isn't a jerk. I think. The thing that's just been on my mind this whole time is, is this really a surprise to anybody? Right. 
you hired Mudge. So and also so, every I mean, if you've been paying a modicum of attention, you know all of the problems that Twitter has had. You know all of the problems that social media has. You know what social media does, its function in this world, its revenue generating model. How is any of this a shock? And we keep seeing yeah, yeah. these stories come out in the news like, oh my God, giant revelations. And I read a bunch of them and I thought, what What are we revealing here? Yeah. Certainly everybody yeah, so, in the security so, world should should know, maybe not to the extent that, so, that so there's some we, details. we know now, but I, I just didn't think any of this is that much of a surprise. No, because you, you understand what's going on here. But yeah, I, I think there's some context, some details that, that we need to go through real quick. Uh, one of the first ones is that Mudge was not the CISO. Uh, he was hired as head of security, which is kind of a different role from for CISO. It's you know more of a, a technical role. It, it's the same title more he had. More hands-on role. Yeah. The question it, is, the question with that, Adrian, as I'm sure you are going to get to, which is why you're bringing this up, is right. do you have legal responsibility as a CISO versus a head of security? No, actually, I wasn't. But let's let's get back to that. But I I, I want to get like the kind of some of the foundational groundwork out of the way here, which get is it. that Mudge was hired directly by Jack Dorsey, uh, Twitter's founder, right after a hack. Uh, I, I think Dorsey knew who he was hiring, uh, but this is also a time when Dorsey was less, you know, a fractional CEO basically of Twitter. Twitter had no leadership. For a while and it was something that investors had been complaining about for years uh, because jack was also the ceo of square which has uh since uh rebranded as block and uh he was spending all his time over there and you know this is one thing that mudge mentions is you know it was hard to even get uh any of dorsey's time and when he did talk to dorsey dorsey didn't say much you know it basically be like a one-way report you know so basically uh, you know, Mudge was brought in, yeah, and, and more and more when you look at it, you know, it seems like something that that was very much a, a PR move to bring in. Which yeah, last person, like, like you don't want to bring in like one of the most mission oriented hackers on the planet to to come clean up your business so if you just want them there for for the for the PR. Uh, I disagree. Value, I right? don't think that was a PR play. I think Jack cared. The replacement CEO did not. Well, he cared and, that, and immediately checked out. That's a problem. Well, that, he, he cared, immediately checked out, and that replacement CEO didn't come come in for like a year after Jack Dorsey had basically checked out and, and wasn't doing the job anymore. But the question, so you bring up a very interesting point. Um, and Ed Amorosa from Tag Cyber had a very interesting article if you get a chance to read it i would recommend going and reading reading it it you was can read basically my comments make, on it <laughs> oh is it on the list uh, my, no my, my comments are on on his article i comment oh, oh yes so on the linkedin article i was shocked by the article he wrote quite frankly because i'm i'm of the opinion of the exact opposite of it um and the reason why is put yourself into the situation of say a joe sullivan from Uber. Yeah. I right? was going to mention buried things or supposedly has been accused of burying things, hiding things, not doing what he needed to do as a CISO, where he has executive level responsibility for the security of Uber. And now he's got himself himself in a very, very serious criminal and civil lawsuit situation. So flip that, learn from that, and now put yourself into Mudge's spot where he yeah. is considered a executive, not the CISO, but an executive level representation of cybersecurity, which means he's presumably at the board level and communicating with board members. And the article I read, uh, I think it was in the Times that broke it or CNN, CNN that broke it, said that he was at the board level. If he were to bury it, ignore it, not bring it up, not whistleblow it, is he going to go down the same exact path as Joe Sullivan if something extremely bad were to occur? Exactly. Yeah. Liability. Right. You know, mm -hmm. which is what you're getting to with the, you know, the, the legal ang angle that you, you mentioned earlier. 
And honestly, I, I thought it was a little disrespectful of Rinky Sethi, who was the actual CISO of Twitter, who was hired at the same time as Mudge and left at the same time as Mudge. And nobody seems to remember this, but uh, we actually covered it on the show because we were a little confused. We are like, because Mudge was announced like a week before Rinky was. And when Rinky was announced as a CISO, we were like, okay, wait, then what's Mudge? If Rinky's, mm -hmm. you know, because Mudge uh, was reporting directly to Jack Dorsey. Uh, so definitely at that, uh, at that executive level. Um, but then Rinky... You know, I, I'm not sure who Rinky w was was reporting to, but um, she actually had the CISO title. Came on when Mudge did, left when Mudge did. So when I read Ed's article, I was like, dude, it, it, like the whole article is about he was a bad CISO. You know, this isn't the job of the CISO. CISO is supposed to CISO, CISO. I'm like, wait, he wasn't the CISO. That was not his charter. That was not what he was hired to do. If you go back mm -hmm. and you read because uh, he provided media a bunch of quotes about why he was joining, why Jack hired him, uh, what his goals were, you know, very clear on that. And it was not a CISO gig. Yeah, I mean, sure. What you end up debating then is the ethical and morality side of the equation, which, quite frankly, like, I don't. I don't necessarily want to fight either side of that fight because people have their own versions of ethics, morals, et cetera. And I'm not going to sit here and pass judgment on Mudge, who, you know, yeah. personally, I've I knew 20 years ago. We worked together. We were we were colleagues at at stake in, in 2001 onward. Right. So I have the utmost respect for the guy and I'm not going to I don't judge people's ethics and morals. That's their decisions to make. But I, I think looking at it simply in the slot of the legal ramifications of not bringing it up it's just keeping your ass out of jail and i wonder if rinky and i don't know rinky yeah. at all I, I don't know her personally i've never met her you know she came in same time left same time she probably has similar information and data and you know maybe it's a similar departure reason and she just chose not to go public with it i don't know uh, but for me it's not an ethical or moral decision it's to, it's a keep my ass out of jail decision yeah. 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 And and especially if we're going back to the whole Joe Sullivan thing, we talk about and again, I'm not going to make any judgment and certainly no political statement on what I personally feel about the Joe Sullivan case either. What I have said and written publicly is that audit trail, audit trail, audit trail, you know, create that paper trail. Yeah. And if this is part of what Mudge was doing, good for him. That's smart. If 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 this is a CYA then it's got to be a CYA. We will never, ever know what goes on behind the scenes in cases like this. Yep. Never. It's just yeah, the not publicly, His publicly stated reason. So I don't think reasons, it's a case though. of whether or not you know, this was a good decision or a bad decision. Um, it's, you know, if we're saying, hey, you've got to document, you've got to report, you've got to, you know, make sure if you see bad things going on that you're talking to the people in the positions and you're documenting that you're talking to the people in the positions who can make those decisions, then, you know, we, we all got to put food on our table, folks. You know, yeah. I, it, yeah, it is what it is. I, I don't I, think I, that's um, a problem. I think, you know, we, I think the main thing about this is, is the media attention that this is getting for being so shocking. For me, yeah, I mean, anyway, it's, it's, I think it's kind of funny that it's getting so much media attention. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's a shocking issue. You know, I think, um, you know, I, I listened to the the actual interviews Mudge gave on it. Um, and he kind of plays up the I want to do good for the world card, which for what it's worth, I remember him saying when I knew him in 2001, that was his M.O. Like he's never varied or or or. Switch yeah. gears off go, from, go I want to do better for the world. 1998 Senate uh, subcommittee testimony. Hey, it sounds exactly the same. He is not, he is not strayed from that. But I, I will say, um, if that's his only reason for doing it, that's a little bit more difficult. Um, because now you're like, well, then you are making the moral judgment on whether what Twitter does is good or bad. Which for me is a difficult thing to swallow. I think the argument that he should be publicly making and the question I would love to ask him as a journalist is talk to me about the legal ramifications of what you are doing and why you are doing this from a legal perspective. Right. Yes. Because it, yes. that to me is, I think, the crux of, 
you know, listen, anybody can make, you're going to get both sides of a coin argument when it comes to ethics and morals. Everybody has different ones, but it's very difficult to, to have flip both sides of a coin when there's evidence that proves you broke the law or not. And I think that's the meat and the crux of what I would love to hear from him if he does do more interviews on the topic. Well, the the actual allegations, you know, if if, if you read, um, you know, the details uh, of the whistleblower report, um, there's a mix of stuff in there that's a bit squishy and a mix of stuff in there that's kind of slam dunk, like 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 clearly misleading investors uh, asking him to beautify reports of bad stuff and take things out and and uh, make things look a certain way. Uh, so th- there's some slam dunk stuff in there that just looks awful uh, on Twitter's behavior. Uh, you know, even, even the legal team there and then stuff that's a little bit more, you know, certainly opinion, you know, a a little bit more leeway on, but just the, the volume of stuff in it is, uh, is bad. Yeah. (laughs) So, so the the question, Adrian, question I have for you, you read it. The question I have for you, since you did read through the actual, um, uh, the actual whistleblower report is that that specific piece of it. Does he identify exactly what he had to remove from the board decks? Yeah, he's he's very specific, and I, I oh. you know, to be clear, I didn't get through all of it. There's there's a okay. ton. It's, it, it's because huge. that's another he, thing he I'll chuck out there, very, very right? Specific. He's that's like, another I thing hired, I'll chuck. I hired that's this external thing. company, put together this report, and they sure. put it together, and this is what they found. And then Twitter hired another third party to take that report and, and clean it up. <laughs> well, so, I mean, that's another interesting thing, right? Put so even his opinion, he hired an external independent company to do some of these assessments. Yeah, but it sounds like others hired other external companies to do similar assessments or cross compare them, right? So, again, I'm not going to say that that necessarily what uber did on or not uber sorry twitter did here was necessarily wrong either maybe they got contradictory data returned the other thing i'll throw out there too is it is a very difficult situation to be on a senior executive leadership team and presenting to board members on things that don't have clear impact with what you do and don't have to disclose. It becomes a fine balancing act between, hey, you know, I could disclose a bunch of stuff as CEO and get myself fired tomorrow, right? Like they have that that capability. Cross, cross that or the flip side of that coin is if I don't disclose certain things, I'm in jail, right? So it is a very difficult, sticky situation to be in a leadership team there. And now I'm not defending that they went back through and removed a bunch of stuff. What I'm saying is I'm not surprised they tried. And the question is, what they removed, was it pertinent to board? Was it risky to board? Was it pertinent to laws requiring disclosure to board? Those are all the very difficult questions that we have no data around. Yeah. And some of it's like conversations that he had with the CTO who became the CEO. And and that's another interesting thing is is the current CEO of Twitter um, was a software engineer that Twitter's really been his only non-intern job. And he just Mm -hmm. kind of rose up through the ranks and suddenly became CEO, has no That's a hell of a ride. CEO. I know, right? Like like <laughs> the first CEO gig you're gonna have is Twitter. You know, <laughs> your your first and only job. Like like that's you know, either I don't know, it's probably it's problematic. You know, get yeah, that's the a hell, kind of a hell of a ride sounds like a, a, a rather narrow focused CEO. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, he, he's been there for over, you know, just a couple years after Twitter was founded. So, you know, like, like strong sense of loyalty, do anything for the company, you know, bit, you know, maybe biased in, in some of the wrong directions uh, to, to make the right decisions here. But I, I um, think, you know, we are getting into a little bit of a, an ethical and moral discussion here. And, and it's hard not to, because when you when you look at people's positions in a company, it's political. It's almost always political. It just is. People get fired all the time for disagreeing with their companies. And, 
you don't know anybody's individual circumstance. You don't know their beliefs. You don't know their background. You don't know anybody's individual situation. So to say that they're doing things to cover up for the company, that could in some cases be a stretch. Maybe that person is really worried about just keeping their job and being gainfully employed. I'm not saying this is what happened here. Um, but I think when we look at the whole, the topic as a whole, you have to keep that in mind. I have never worked for a company, big or small, where there isn't some element of political clout. And where if you yeah. don't align with the company and with the majority of people at that company, you're putting your own employment at risk. And there are a lot of people who will just say, I'm going to go with the flow because I need a job. I have myself to support, my family to support, whomever to support. And this is what it has to be. And I know this is a much broader based topic than this. And I don't necessarily think it, it it's what happened with Munge. But we don't know what else is going on in the company. But we can guarantee that whether it's Twitter or any other company on the planet, there are politics involved and we will never know what they are. And the and balance that's where things get so murky. And even from yeah. the legal point of view, if legal were actually black and white, if these were draconian decisions, we wouldn't have the legal system that we have. Yep. So, yep. The, you know, the balance you get of, a great of, lawyer, you can avoid a lot of hot water. Yeah. The balance of those politics against, you know, the the law and against the requirements of the business, uh, that balance is just not something that's black and white. And that's why you're seeing half the CISOs of the world taking Ed's side on this going, that's not a CISO's job. And you see the other half of people like me going, it's absolutely a requirement for the CISO to be bringing these things up at that level, right? So I think it's a debate that really has no right answer as much as I have my one-sided opinion on it. I think it's a debate that has no right answer. Just another reminder, he wasn't the CISO. <laughs> Correct. Right. The, the, the non-CISO CISO slot, yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and it's going to be interesting to see the impact that it has on Elon Musk's uh, upcoming trial, which uh, I think is going to be next month. You know, his lawyers tried to delay it, but it's, uh, you know, th this court, this uh, Delaware court is just, I think it's a Delaware court, is not messing around. And uh, they, they want it to be expeditious, you know, open shut pretty quick. You know, there's not going to be a jury and uh, and they're expected to go through it in like a couple of days. But certainly this is uh, fuel for that fire. And uh, I'm interested to see how it how it impacts it. Talk about a, I talk suspect about a we time. will see some um, speculation as to whether or not people think Mudge is in Musk's pocket. Yeah. Yeah. Talk Talk about a well-timed uh, for Musk drop of information. I guarantee he's licking his lips yeah. now at this information and as, as helping his legal it, argument. It does look to be totally coincidental. Uh, you know, sure reportedly the whistleblower complaint was started long before Musk uh, decided to start tweeting that he oh, was going to sure, buy Twitter. But that's not how conspiracy theories work. <laughs> <laughs> Stupid facts. <laughs> Don't let facts, facts get in the way of a good story. Come on now. Exactly. <laughs> All right. Let's uh, let's lighten things up, jump to some squirrel stories, and and then we're going to wrap things up here. We're not going to get to a lot of this stuff. Uh, I think those are two really important stories to cover. So uh, if you want to check out some of the other stories, some really cool free tools, new tools, uh, some other interesting stories in there, I urge you to go check out the uh, the show notes and check those out. But our, our first squirrel story, there's just so many <laughs> jokes about an anonymous poop gifting site. And when, when I say poop, I mean actual uh, feces uh, sourced from various different animals. This was a company you could actually pay to send, uh, like horse patties, for example, uh, to, to somebody you dislike. And I want to see the financials on this company. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, there, so you could you can figure out the financials because yes, you we know the number of records and we know how much it cost. I, I have not done this, but you could do the math pretty quick. It's 
they didn't have that many orders. I think it was in the tens of thousands. No, no. 29,000 orders are in the data. That is shocking. Yeah. That means there's 29,000 to send crap through the mail. There's 29,000 depraved individuals out there that have sent poop to someone. So, so not only do we know high school kids have been doing this for decades (laughs) without spending money. So, not only has all that been de-anonymized, and we know who sent shit to who, (laughs) uh, but we we also have the messages that they included in there. So, this is not a metaphorical who sent shit to who. This is not a metaphor. And and Adrian, I'm hoping you have a, a greatest hits of some of these messages, my friend. Oh, uh, some of them are in the article. Um, ah, my my mouse is not cooperating with me. So if somebody if somebody would check that out, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm having I'm now having to do some surgery on my on my pointing device here. I, I'm looking right now, so or at least trying this, to. Here's here's the process for anybody who can't get to the 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 pro, the article here. So they have a four step buying process. First, you have to choose an animal from which to have their excrement sent. Then you have to provide a shipping address. You customize your packaging, and then you pay for your order. You can pay a a credit card or in Bitcoin. Half a million dollars is 29,000 orders uh, multiplied by 1695. The, wow. the company also says that the service promises its patrons complete anonymity. Yeah, but not anymore. Adrian, Adrian, we're not taking into cost the uh, the cost of goods sold here. <laughs> oh right, okay, yeah. No, you that, had to that, acquire yeah, that just, poop somewhere. No, that that's just uh, gross revenue. That that's not uh, <laughs> gross that's not profit revenue. <laughs> gross revenue. <laughs> that was not even on purpose. It should have been though. That's, <laughs> pretty good <laughs> that's all right it was yeah, quite so the date adrian it was quite the data dump wasn't it <laughs> that's oh. what i was saying launching into this is there's so many jokes so many <laughs> joke opportunities in here uh but you wanted quotes i've got some quotes for you i saw a cockroach today and thought of you i stepped on it <laughs> this gift shows my thanks for your hard work and is a symbol of how great my team thinks you are enjoy Uh, that's about it. They, they, they didn't share that many. I, I actually downloaded the data dump and I have the dump. I downloaded have it. The dump. Yeah. I, I, I don't, I don't have it on this computer. Um, when I download have stuff like on that, that computer? I don't, I have special computers for, uh, browsing dark web. And it, <laughs> yeah. 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 This is, this is a shit free computer. <laughs> All right, hey, can we? Can you do me a favor? I'm. This is a shitty topic. Let's go over to Janet Jackson. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, speaking of, uh, yeah, yeah. So, so slightly different here. Um, this is. Uh, uh, well, it depends on how you feel about the the song "Rhythm Nation," I guess. Um, I I was always a fan of it. Uh, I'm a huge fan. Some people, Great song. Some people do not like it. Uh, but this is actually something I want to dig into and just do some research for ju- just for fun in, in my spare time. But uh, and, and from what I can tell, this happened a long time ago. I don't know why it's just coming out now. Apparently, the story was just told internally from one Microsoft employee to another Microsoft employee. And that's how it came out. But so this is way back in the day. I, I'm, I'm assuming late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, your average laptop had 5,400 5, RPM. Uh, um, and even before that, there were 4,200 RPM uh, mechanical hard drives. And these drives would just stop working when the song was played. You know, so so the, the assumption here is that uh, there are some notes, there are some frequencies in the song uh, you know that that have uh, uh, resonance with either the hard drive platters themselves uh, or with the speed at which they're turning. Which 5400 RPM, if you convert it, that is an F sharp, 
uh, and the specific, specifically the second fret on the E string, the bottom E on a guitar, is, is the frequency that uh, relates what? to 5400 RPM. Yeah. Wait a minute. Okay, hold hold on. If that were the case, every musician on the planet would have crashed their their computer. Exactly why I want to dig into it. And that note is not even that common in that song. It is in that song. It is within the key, the the uh, E minor seventh, uh, you know, that kind of drones through that song. It's it's mostly just a drone and E throughout that yep. song. Um, that's that's why I want to dig into it more because if this one song could do that, certainly you could isolate what's causing it to happen and make it happen on purpose. And even though mechanical hard drives are are becoming more and more rare today. Uh, I'm wondering if there's other things like like we're starting to see. I know quantum computing, you know, that quantum computing environment is very uh, sensitive. And, you know, one of the other things that uh, the original article here by Raymond Chen at, at Microsoft shares is uh, is an old video on YouTube where a guy shows uh, that he can introduce significant latency into hard drives in a server room by screaming at the hard drives. <laughs> you know, so he actually he pulls up some live stats on on the hard drive uh, latency, uh, and then turns around and screams at the hard drives, and you can see latency go like like up above 500 milliseconds. You know, to to the point to where yeah, if that was a laptop, it would crash. All right, I'm calling BS officially. I am officially calling BS. I need you to determine if this is real or not, Adrian. Go buy some old drives off of. Uh, eBay and see if you can if you can replicate the problem. It's funny because they I do have old drives, but my drives are too old. All my old laptop hard drives are forty two hundred RPM. I don't have any fifty four hundred RPM. So I've got a yeah yeah. There's some research to do here. Definitely, I love it. And if you've never seen the video, the collapse of the Tacoma Narrows Bridge, uh, which is another example of resonant frequencies uh, being problematic is amazing to watch. Uh, look up the Tacoma Narrows Bridge on Wikipedia, and they have an old-timey video on there, and it, it, looks, like, it, it, it looks like it's, it's fake footage. It looks like a movie set. Like, that, that hmm. bridge is just... Uh, I mean, do you remember in gym class when you take out the big parachute and, like, kids would run under, under it? Like, you flip oh, it yeah. up in the air and you run and you pin it down. On, that's what that bridge looked like. Like wow. it was moving that much that it looked like somebody was just whipping it from one end and, and the ripple was just going through it. But yeah, it, it collapsed. <laughs> it fell apart. You don't say. Yeah. And it was just, uh, yeah. Yeah. Re really fascinating topic that I'd love to do more research on. All right. I think we'll call it at that. Uh, thanks so much, Tyler, for joining me today. Absolutely. Yep, and thanks for the uh, wonderful poop topic. I thought that was a great topic today. Thanks for the wonderful poop comments. And Katie, thank you for joining me as well. As always. Yeah, I'm trying it one-on-one, -on -one, uh, you know, one at a time this week. Do you want so to elicit some have... response? <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'm trying to get better. All right, big thanks to everybody uh, watching or listening to this week's episode. Uh, lots of good stuff in the show notes. Go check those out. And we will see you next week.